Welcome back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is New York City comedian Andrew Chavone. He's been doing stand-up for about seven years, and he hosts the Panic Attacking Podcast with Stephen Rogers. Andrew works all over the city, and even had a joke used to start a special on HBO Max without any credit. Oh, comedy. You're going to love this guy. Andrew is going to be telling jokes at the On the Zoom Comedy Show on Saturday, January 30th at 8 p.m. Jimmy Moynihan is opening the show, and Stephen Rogers is headlining. Tickets are 5 bucks and available on Facebook, Eventbrite, or you can send 5 bucks to Mike Peters Comedian on Venmo. You can also become a Patreon member, and for $5 a month, you can get access to every show. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Peeling back my sunburned skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I, I hope they let me in Thanks a lot for doing this. I think you didn't have anything pressing to do today? No. I uh, Tomorrow is, is the crunch time. I got all my gifts lined up. I actually had my wallet stolen, so I had to wait till I got all my cards to quickly order everything, pay out of my butt for extra shipping. But I am now officially all set. I got all my gifts ready for Christmas. I think that's the mark of a true comedian. Like, as well as your life could go during a pandemic, there's always going to be something that happens that throws you for a loop. Like, oh, my life is great, but I don't have a wallet yeah, and I'll show you. I mean, I don't want to give away my card, but I have just my card spread out in front of me like coasters. I, I have no wallet. I'm, I don't, <laughs> I have no, I'm just carrying them loose. Uh, but it's more safer, apparently, because the wallet got taken right out of my pocket, I think. I lost my wallet one time, and this is why I don't gamble. I went to a casino and I won $140. So I got that in my wallet. And then I was asked to be the driver at a bachelorette party in the Adirondacks. Oh, yeah, it was very prestigious. It was a prestigious job. <laughs> so, so I got asked to be out there. And after I came home, I went to get gas, and I must have dropped my wallet there. Somebody picked it up, took all the money. I never got the wallet back, but they started using my ATM card. And jokes on them, I had no money in it. Oh. So, so, but I'm like, you know, I lost like my social security card, which I guess is important. And Your social security card was in your wallet? Yeah, I'm an idiot. Let's uh that should be, yeah, that should be in a safe deposit box. <laughs> I don't you, I have, you, they could I have got, stolen your identity, Mike. If you weren't such a poor uh sad sack, they could have uh been romping around with your identity. If listen, it wasn't such a downgrade. <laughs> I know they would like, have stolen why, it. That's what I don't give a shit. It's like you want my identity, take it. I've been tr- I've been begging people to take this off me, but nobody's gonna do that. Uh I asked my mom for my birth certificate once. She's like, ah, we don't have that. I'm like, how do you not have that? She's like, ah, oh, we lost it. I'm like, like in a poker game? What what happened? Yeah, they wagered too high. I don't have mine either. I, I I have my social security card. It's a flimsy piece of paper that I don't even think is real. It's just so such a valuable asset of your life. Shouldn't it be on such like paper that could melt if you if you get rain on it? Yeah, mine look like I didn't laminate it. I think I don't even I know mean, if you're allowed I mean to laminate it. But mine is just so brittle and I got I had to get it reissued uh after that, obviously. So I've had it for only like eight, nine years. But I think it's still in my wallet, honestly. So I don't learn. Yeah. I mean, is that, behind you is a Zoom background, right? Uh, you don't really... No. This is my office. So I, I rebuilt this office. Oh, this uh, is your... I, this is where you, yeah. you work? Yeah. So I live with an ex-girlfriend or, or a girlfriend and an ex-girlfriend, I guess. She moved out and I'm like, well, screw it. I gave my cats my this room. And then I'm like, no, that's stupid because they've got the run of the house. I want at least this room. 
So right. what I did was I ordered uh, canvas screenshots of all my favorite albums and like uh, from like punk bands and comedians are on, on this side. So yeah. and then I, I just put them uh, behind me. My friend Danielle came over and uh, she's got more of an artistic eye and I have a working credit card. So we just kind of put this together. So it's legitimate oh, cool. pictures behind me. Oh, so. I thought I thought that was a picture of Hot Topic, the, the, <laughs> the, the T-shirt display. I know. No, that's in my, that's it, looks my closet. Like, it looks like a zoom back. I mean, it's great. Uh, that So well done that you think it's artificial. I mean, that's a quality real life background. Yeah. Uh, you know what, what I don't tell people is as soon as you do the podcast, I put your picture up there. So, okay. Yeah. But just put me next to Seinfeld and <laughs> yeah. next to, uh, Sarah Silverman. Sarah, got, Sarah Silverman. Got, uh, you can't say it. Chris Rock, Jim Gaffigan, Rebiglia, Mulaney. Ooh. Uh, let's see. Carlin. I guess he's okay. And then and who's in the bathtub? <laughs> who's, oh, that's uh, Zach Hammond. He's a comedian out of uh, Scranton or Wilkesbury. So, oh, nice. uh, but Demetri okay. Martin and That'd Sandler. Be... So, yeah, I snuck him in there. And then my face is on there because if anybody's going to be a fan of me, it's going to be me. We must be the same age because I had less than Jake Offspring. Those oh, really? same CDs. Uh, and above it is looks like the Deftones. But it's a uh, bad religion. No effects. The Wonder Years. Motion City soundtrack. This could be the entire podcast. I could just read off the. Oh, sorry. I have ADD, so I'm looking at those things. Sorry, we can move on. I'm. No, no, it's fine. Did you listen to a lot of punk rock? Yeah, I got the first. You know, it, it's like the natural thing of a kid in the '90s. I played the Tony Hawk video game, awesome. then I skateboarded, and then I'm like, "Hey, uh, they, you have to listen to this music if you want to be cool." So then I listened to punk, and I didn't even really like it. I just bought all the CDs and listened to it. <laughs> what, just to fit in? <laughs> yeah, just be like, I, this is what I have to do. I have to wear baggy cargo shorts and a T-shirt with a with a logo of a skateboard shoe company on it. And then I have to uh, listen to this music for some reason. You're describing my life at uh, 37 years old, so... <laughs> <laughs> I have never grown so. up. Yeah. <laughs> I always joke that like if there was an action figure of me, it would be sold with a hooded sweatshirt, like a studded belt. I mean, I don't wear the studded belt anymore, but it would just have all these accessories that like it used to be a grapefruit, a bottle of grapefruit juice. You always had one of those in college. Just, you know, Vans shoes or DC shoes, something like that. I was yeah, like, Vans I looked DC, like, yeah. Yeah, I looked like the skateboarder kid, but I was too afraid to skateboard. Oh, you didn't even you didn't skateboard at all? No, complete poser. I was a wuss too. I, I mean, like I went to the park, but I went down like the small ramps, uh, and that was it. I that was my move was going up the ramp and then down the ramp without doing any twirls or anything. And then I was like, "Hey, I'm a hardcore skater." My move was just playing Tony Hawk Three. Yeah, oh, that's me too. I was like, I was like, listen, I know Guttermouth, I know the band in there. That should give me enough cred. Oh, so it was a reverse for you. So you got into punk music, and then skateboarding was the logical conclusion to that. Yeah. Yeah, so I got it. It was 94, and Dookie from Green Day came out, and that was huge. So uh, my friend played Basket Case, and I fell in love with Billy Joe Armstrong, Green Day, and my sister loved Billy Joel. So I'm like, oh, cool, like this, we have something in common. And she's like, they're not the same, Mike. So, <laughs> but uh, I went from Green Day, and then uh, my sister's boyfriend, like 311 and No Effects, and, and I got into Blink 182 around 97. So it kind of like, like spiraled in there. My best friend, Jeff, he and I would show each other bands. And then we had PlayStation and that's when Tony Hawk two was there. We saw that game that Tony Hawk three on PlayStation two. So yeah, it was, it was the music first and then the skateboarding. 
if anyone's here born after 1990, I'm sure they're they're bored out of their mind. But yeah, this was a big moment for us. It was Tony Hawk game, the songs and the culture of dressing like a uh, a poser or whatever. I, I don't know how to describe it, but <laughs> it's pretty much a skater it. poser. <laughs> well, you're from you're from Virginia, right? Yeah. Okay. Alexandria. I had a buddy uh, who my buddy Josh lived in Alexandria for like a year and a half. So I'd been there twice, maybe. Uh, oh, nice. I, so there's, I, yeah, I, there's a good part and there's a bad. I grew up in the bad part, but I would hang out in the good part. So I know most of the city. You're smart. <laughs> I would hang on the bad part, too, but there wasn't a lot going on. <laughs> I covered sports in Maryland. So I got to know a little bit of Northern Virginia and a buddy of mine went to George Mason. So I was in the area every once in a while. But Alexandria yeah, is what, like 45 minutes from, from Mason? Even less. Yeah, I, I was supposed to go to Mason and my parents were like, no, you have to leave because we don't want you living at home. So like, <laughs> I had to go to VCU, which is like Mason of Richmond. And uh, it w- it costs like like a buck and a quarter to go every semester if you lived in Virginia. If you don't know what VCU is, it's like a uh, it's like an art school, but it's public. It's basically like a community college of, of Virginia, but they have a basketball team and stuff. Yeah, which the basketball team does pretty well every couple of years. Yeah, it's enough to be like, all right, we're not we're not like a, a crappy school, but even though we are, but the basketball team's good, I guess. But uh, there was, there's University of Richmond, which is a private school, and I thought VCU was like pretty awesome until they were like, oh yeah, VCU is a piece of crap school. Anyone can get in there, and I'm like, oh man. I would think it's the other way around. The only thing I know about Richmond is like the, the spiders. That's the only yeah, thing I know about it. <laughs> yeah, that, it, and then Richmond, yeah, it's a very expensive school. If you have the money to go there, you get in. But I guess VCU, I don't know what it was, but VCU is where... I grew up in a, like, I went to a small school in, in Alexandria. And when I went to VCU, I thought I was hardcore listening to punk music and um, skateboarding. The people at VCU were like the proto Fallout Boy. What is that, emo? Yeah, yeah. Around that time, it was emo. They wore, they had like tattoos and piercings and they wore girls' clothes, which is now fashionable. I but never time, understood that. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I, never, I was like, holy crap, what is this? I never was, uh, I think that started coming around when I was in college, but like I was in much better shape in college, but I was never, I, my frame was never skinny enough to pull off like the girl <laughs> jeans. Yeah. And, right. But like, if you were really into dashboard confessional or the get up kids, yes. you were wearing girls pants and clothes. Like they were like, you'd like shop at the baby gap. Like all of my ex-girlfriend's clothes that I had to wash, they would have fit all the get up kids fans. Yeah, right, right. And, and fit snugly. Uh, and <laughs> they'd be able to button them up. Right. Yeah, so I thought I was all cool in Virginia, a little punk kid. And then I got to college. They're all listening to Get Up Kids and, and Emo. And I'm like, what video game is this on? I don't know what this is. <laughs> it's very is depressing. This some kind of, is this Tony Hawk 4? Where, where are you guys listening to this music? I hated it. I hated, <laughs> I hated that scene because did, they, they didn't have a video game. And uh, uh, that's when I left punk behind. I, I thought, you know, I had no friends that listened to it at, in college and... It was either it was either punk or or uh, I mean I'm sorry either Get Up Kids and emo or Ti and Ja Rule or whatever. Yeah, you went in the entirely opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Know. So I'm I sorry. That's that's the story of my life. No, it's fine. When did you start doing comedy? So in in Richmond, actually, I was a uh, a busboy at the Funny Bone. I always wanted to do comedy. I didn't know how, so I I, I was the busboy at this uh, the club in the mall. It was the only comedy club in, in the in the city. And I was like, cool, I'm in the industry. You know, like, I'm in the scene, the comedy scene. Uh, and they were like, um, no, you're, you're, you work in the kitchen. <laughs> you're, not, and you're, not, you're not a comedian. You're, you're in the kitchen and you, you serve people chicken wings. 
that are watching a comedian, you know. And I worked there for like two years. I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I, I, I thought like I would get my big break. I was so dumb. This is before podcasts and stuff, but right. this is just the basis of, of my life. But so I, I would like write the the hosts would be the bartender at the club. So I would write him jokes because he would just go up and, and yell and he didn't know what to do. So I, I would write him jokes and he'd be like, he's a pretty good kid. I'm like, yeah, can I do this? And he said, no, you have to serve people chicken wings and stuff. I don't <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't know. I was really stuck and I didn't know how to break into the scene, even though that was my whole world. And then um, the comedians that would come down and headline, they'd be from, they were all from New York City. And I'd all talk to them. I'd like pick their brains and they're like, hey, did you, you got to get out of here, man. If you want to be a comedian, you have to move to New York and, and actually perform and not uh, pick up uh, used napkins from people. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So I went to, I didn't know what to do to get up to New York. So I, I applied to, to grad school up there. That gave me a reason to go up there. So I went up there and uh, just did open mics in 2013. And then um, I did, you know, it started like one open mic a week and then two open mics a week. And then by like the third month of, of doing open mics, I was doing like four open mics a night. And, oh, wow. uh, and then that's how I started. I, I was pretty bad, but I, I, I was just so excited to finally perform after being a busboy that I, ha- I just had such so much energy because I, I couldn't believe I, I was performing that I was getting away with having really bad jokes. <laughs> well, I don't think you're that. I don't think you're that far off in your thought though, because it you, you say you didn't have podcasts though, but like all the stories you hear about, oh, this guy worked the door at the DC Improv. And because I think Berbiglia worked the door there, or yeah, somebody. him and him and Mulaney, yeah, and and Neil Brennan worked the door, right. I think, uh, somewhere. So you're not completely far off. Yeah, I think I did. I did hear that Dave Chappelle started working the door, so I thought, oh, that's how you do it. Or I don't know, something clicked for me where I'm like, I want to be in the comedy world, so this is this will be it. I, I'm in. I'm in the doors. <laughs> so you so you started completely in New York. Completely in New York, yeah. I had nothing. I, all I did was like watch comedians and and kind of write down some ideas f- for jokes that were were bad and then uh, <laughs> and I started completely in New York. That's where I met like the friends. Um, well, a lot of my friends they quit. <laughs> the people I met in New York all like uh, gave up after a year, and then I had to meet meet new friends. And then uh, and then the, the friends I met later are the ones I still have. So I mean, you've been doing it seven years. Do you ever think back to you know maybe how you would have been had you started in Richmond? Had you actually like done two years of mics there or shows and then moved to New York? Or would you not change at all? If I started Richmond, I would definitely... Richmond is such a weird, uh, cheap place. Like You can buy... I My apartment was... I lived in a huge house with two other guys and I paid $200 a month. Oh my God. So like you could... Um, like it's so easy to have a family and, and be a blue collar guy that I would probably... And then plus in Richmond... At the time when I started or when I worked at the Funny Bone, there there was no opportunity for stage time at all. You had to do the bringer show at the Funny Bone, which they wouldn't let me do because uh, I worked there. But <laughs> that was the only... So I would perform... If I lived in Richmond still, I would probably perform there once a month and then and then just have kids at, at uh, 20. And, oh, okay. Uh, and, so, then that, that, that'd be my, and then I would just be some... I'd be fat by now and uh, I'd, I'd probably be... Ha- I'd probably be... I have a huge house, but I would probably be like, man... And, uh, I wish I did comedy. I, what am I doing right. here? I, I, I'm fat and I have kids and I, I live in Richmond. <laughs> and nobody wants kids. <laughs> no, I mean, you can have kids, but <laughs> uh, it kind of locks down your 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 dreams, I feel like. A little bit, yeah. 
That's that's what I tell my parents, but they're like, no, you're just ugly. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I, I have very supportive parents. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against people who have kids. If you have kids, you're you're fine. Unless you had a secret dream of being a comedian, then you're kind of screwed, I feel like. Yeah, I know. Uh, and it happens all the time. Like, I'm Binghamton. I've been here, you know, I, mo- I grew up here, moved away, and came back. And I started doing comedy here, and I'd say almost five years ago. And I love it, but people cycle in and out. And the people with kids are the first to leave. The shelf life is so small because they've got an actual life and responsibilities. And to be a single guy in a comedy scene is awesome because we don't say no to anything. No. Yeah. And we're out hanging, drinking, making connections. You know, that was my whole two years of comedy was performing and then getting like super drunk with uh, like all the comedians on the show. I was a, just a piece of crap person but it was a lot of fun and it you know they're still the friends i have now well i know you i know of you because of panic attacking your podcast oh nice yeah rogers and uh this feels weird but i've listened to every episode so oh dude like back when it started or or uh just like getting ready for this no 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 i i probably started listening in the second or third episode something like that yeah because uh you know i i knew steven rogers up here so basically yeah, he's the king I, of upstate. Like everyone knows him. Bill knows him. I would say Prince, but whatever. Uh, Prince. Yeah. <laughs> I downgrade him just to keep his ego in check, but no, he was a great guy. So what I try to do is if anybody has like a local, if a local comedian has a podcast and I consider Steve local, I mean, he grew up here, uh, then I'll listen to it. So yeah, I, I started listening to that and I had him on this podcast. I don't know a year ago, maybe. And he was gushing about you. And oh, cool. he said it was like 40 minutes of just good stuff about Andrew Chavon. And I'm like, listen, guy, stop. It's it's annoying. Well, I got to uh, feel like now it puts the pressure on me to talk about him. I'm just no, talking about him in generally. Well, uh, we'll trash talk him. But no, he said he said uh, and it, it comes across clearly that you guys have a ton of fun together. So if yeah. he's one of the guys you've met, then obviously it's a good move. Yeah, he was one of the guys. We, me and him would be out late. I met him a little later. He moved to New York. Um, in 2000, I uh, probably 2016, I think, or 17 or it was the end of 17, I think, or maybe yeah. Then me and him clicked right away. Yeah. We had the same kind of bits and uh, personality. And then at the time I had just moved to Astoria and he just moved to Astoria, which is this town in Queens. Me and him both had, had like, uh, not a lot of friends at the time. I think I had, I was in a crew of the crew of guys and we had a podcast and we kind of like argued with each other um about the like 200 people listen to this podcast and we acted like every episode was the tonight show you know we're like every beat had to be perfect and we'd argue with each other about it and uh and so like we broke up so we, we took i took some time away from those guys uh just to focus on my stand-up and, and take a break from podcasting and and that's when i met steven and he was super focused on stand-up we would help each other with the jokes and it was it was magical and then we started our own podcast because but i think we me and him worked together for a year and hung out for a year before we we uh figured out what we wanted to do and stuff you're basically the same person right yeah we, we talk about anxiety we're nervous and we're just like obsessed with jokes like and comedy we me and him both are, are so are like nerds about it and then, uh, so that's all we did. We would talk about jokes. Me and him would get breakfast and talk about jokes. And then we go to the, this open mic and do the jokes. And then we would go to the show and then do the same jokes. And then we would give each other notes about it. It was, it was like a comedy, uh, camp counselor or something. We were each other's. Well, before he moved out of Syracuse and I blame him for, uh, he had so much motivation that when he left, 
it felt like he took all that with him out of Syracuse. Like they still have a good scene, but Steve would, he would make sure he was at every open mic he could get to and people would pile in the car and he'd drive them. And when, when Steve moved out of town and there's a guy in who was out of the Scranton scene, when he moved out of town, like these two cars would stop coming to Binghamton. So we lost about eight comedians at our open mic. And it was really, I didn't think it would happen that way, but it was really clear that when, when Steve left, they're like, eh, whatever, we'll get there when we get there. He was probably, you know, probably not his, you know, intention, but he was probably, you know, he had that cattle prod to their butt saying, hey, we got to get better. We got to get going. And, you know, the motivation kind of left a little bit. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, I, I see that. I mean, especially in a small scene, cause he will, uh, we will do, well, I'll do shows. I don't know if we, me and him have ever done a show upstate together, but I'll do one in Rochester and I'll talk to those guys and, uh, well, they all know Steve too, but yeah, it feels like there's like three comedians in Rochester. So like if Steve left there, then that's one fourth of the comedians in that town, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're, I mean, Syracuse and Rochester are good scenes. They're pretty deep, but it's like when, when an open mic falls, falls out, the scene depletes. So it's really weird. Like, like you think it's so much bigger from the outside, but once you go in there, you're like, Oh no, it's like, it really is four or five people pulling all the strings which I can't imagine that ever happened in New York city. I mean, there's what, how many thousand comedians? Yeah, but similar. I mean, it's like, it's like upstate on a microscopic scale. Cause there's a town in Brooklyn called Bushwick. There's a town in Brooklyn called Williamsburg. And if the leaders of those scenes moved away or died or something, those mini scenes would fall apart and it has fallen apart. Cause there was this other scene called the Creek in the cave in long Island city. And that was a big uh, vortex of, of comedy and that's closed down. So I can't imagine what, those comedians are going to there's comedians that only perform there. So I don't know what they're going to do. Um, yeah, I, I think I think like for me, like I I run 14 rooms around the state of New York. And oh, cool. you know, like back when, you know, we could actually do something outside or inside somewhere. But what I did was I noticed there was a whole lot of apathy in Binghamton scene. So I would think like if somebody's motivated in Long Island City, like from the creek in the cave and they can get a venue, then they can regenerate that scene pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah, but it's hard for comedians to have a credit score to open their own venue. But <laughs> that's, that's uh, a good point. And it's funny, like uh, my first impression of Binghamton is just a town that's, as you described, uh, unmotivated uh, yes. people. And yes, <laughs> it just looks like a grisly town of uh, people like walking on the sidewalk and that look homeless. Well, we just we just got 44 inches of snow, so that will take some spirit out of you. <laughs> uh, like, like, I think uh, I think Binghamton people were good. We're beaten down, and like every time I see like a top, you know those top five lists of like in Playboy magazine or somewhere else, like on BuzzFeed, Binghamton's always among the top five of most depressed cities in the country, mm. or obese, or oh, wow. despondent. Like it's all these negative attributes. Binghamton is on the top five list of everything. Yeah, never highest educated. Uh, we're, we're not dumb, but it's like we're not going to get that recognition. Our greatest crown was once the the Binghamton University. Uh, we had the, we had a basketball team. They went against Duke one year in the wow. tournament. Yeah, it was great. They got you know the shit kicked out of them by Duke, but we're so proud of them. And then that year, all the good players got busted for cheating. So it's like we we almost had something. They cheating cheating on their grades or on basketball? Uh, grades. Yeah, it was like an academic. Oh, come season. on. Yeah, and it's like people affiliated with Binghamton University love to say that that's like the the Harvard of the SUNY school system in New York. But I don't know how impressive that is. 
But as soon as like like that hit ESPN, it's like, oh yeah, well, Binghamton's known as the Harvard of the studio system. It's like, yeah, well, they're fixing their grades. Like that's that's probably why. Right. Yeah, they're cheating at that. Yeah, it's like um to- Tommy Lofferlin or whoever uh who is the kid that or the do- the mom that paid for her kids to get to USC? Was that Lori Laughlin? Lori Laughlin, yeah, that's like Lori Laughlin saying that her kid is the, the Harvard class uh, Valley Victorian. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's not real. But oh, so I I knew Binghamton University. I had friends that went there when I moved up here and and t- started talking to people. But they were like, yeah, they they all were like, yeah, SUNY Binghamton is a great school. And then somebody else, when they met somebody from Binghamton, they would call them a townie. And I always thought that was very condescending, yeah. but <laughs> like, uh, it's your town. I mean, like, I mean, you should be a Bingham Knight and not a town. I, I <laughs> yeah, I, I know I wanted to leave. I didn't want to be a townie. So I think everybody's like that a little bit, but, but like, uh, so that is a thing amongst people that grew up there. They, they call themselves townies. Well, no, I don't think so. I think like I, I went to Mansfield, it's a small school in Pennsylvania, and we would call the Mansfield people townies, like the, the people <laughs> oh, from town. Okay. So I just think I put myself into a Binghamton student's uh, mind, and I would call myself a townie, but I didn't want to grow up. Like, I graduated school. I'm like, well, I don't want to stick around my hometown and become a townie. So it was like a fear of mine. So, but I left, and I'm like, you know, it's not so bad of an area. It's not the greatest place, but I don't mind it. Yeah, I mean, compared to whatever Pennsylvania town, I mean... You know, Pennsylvania towns are pretty depressing, too. Yeah. Well, Mansfield had like we had uh, one streetlight. We had a Walmart, one bar and a Dunkin Donuts. That was pretty that's much like a, it. That's like a, that could be a country song right there. Yeah, pretty much. It was very depressing. All you <laughs> need is livestock. <laughs> Pickup truck. <laughs> you always like I always notice that with with country, like the songs had to include Jesus, livestock, a truck, the American flag. In love, but love is like in every song anyway. But well, also beer, beer, beer and, and yeah. drinking. Always uh, a place to drink. Well, the back of a pickup truck, usually. They would do that, yeah. Drink on a dirt road, drink on a field, drink on a barn. Uh, you know, that's a lot of the songs or places. Some One song was Redneck Yacht Club. That's about drinking on a boat that's docked. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, so I grew up in Richmond, so I'm exposed to country by osmosis. And there's there's one song I hate so much, and I and I still hear it sometimes. But it's called Chattahoochee by Alan Jackson, and the first two lines are "Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee, it gets hotter than a hoochie's coochie." <laughs> and, and I was just like, "That is so dumb. That is so dumb. That is so. That's a song. I can't. Yeah. believe it. And that's his hit. <laughs> and, it, and it probably made him millions of dollars. Billions, yeah, and it still plays. He's still getting royalties for Hoochie's Coochie. Doesn't that depress you a little bit? Like you could create the greatest joke of all time, and it's not going to get you more money than that song. No, no, yeah, and then and that thing about that song is they put it on a party. Everyone goes, all the drunk Southern people say Hoochie Coochie in unison and laugh. Uh, but if you said the same joke where the punchline is hoochie coochie, no one would laugh because they already heard it. And uh, they'd be like, why are you playing this at a party? Yeah. <laughs> we want to da- dance. When do you think the last time uh, somebody ripped out like a Dimitri Martin DVD in the middle of a party and said, hey, let's all dance to the large pad? Yeah, let's yeah, let's all uh, grind uh, to this one liner. Who do you up listening to? Comedians. I listen yeah. to uh, Gaffigan. Dimitri Martin, whoever was on Comedy Central, I, I was like obsessed with. I would like look them up online. There's no comedy online, but I look at their websites and be like, wow, their bio is funny. You know, like 
Berbiglia, Gaffigan. I like um like Gaffigan's like he, he used to be like such a like a prick in in his uh stand up, you know. Yeah. Like he used to be so mean. Now he talks about food and stuff, but like when I listened to him, he was like uh joking about kicking people out of wheelchairs and having sex with horses and stuff. And I was like, wow, this guy's so funny. And I listened to Attell, all those guys, the classic comedians of the early 2000s. I, I were ups- I was ups- there wasn't one that I, I didn't know of or, or didn't listen to. If they had a Comedy Central Presents half hour, they were gold to me. Yeah, same. Yeah. I'm like, wow, to play that music. It was like a jazz line when they walk on stage. And, yep. and I still meet the comedians that were on those specials now. And I'm like, holy crap. And they're just like some... They're doing the same spot I'm doing, you know, like they're probably really depressed about their status or their career. And I'm like, holy <laughs> crap, I can't believe I'm on a, I'm on a show with this guy who whose only credit is this special that I saw. <laughs> what a special. But what a special. Wow. <laughs> What's that like for you? I mean, uh, let's let's say I'm, I, don't know, I don't know who you've bumped into, but is it easy for you to keep like uh, the fan inside? Now, yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. So like Rich Voss, I was obsessed with. He came to the Richmond Funny Bone and he was selling like DVDs. And I came out and I had like nacho cheese on my shirt because, you know, snot and whatever. (laughs) And I asked him, I'm like, can I have one of your DVDs? And he said, no, but you have to pay for it. And I said, "Uh, okay, Uh, how much is it? He he said like something outrageous. And then his wife, Bonnie, was like, just give it to him, man. He works here. And and he was like, fine. He gave me his DVD and and I watched it at home. And it was just the, the hour he just did at the Funny Bone. So I was like, Okay, cool. I, whatever. Good thing I didn't pay for this. So then flash forward, I would see him when I first moved to New York. He was friends with some of my friends who were a little bit older. And then he would just make fun of me, call me stupid and stuff. And I, I was like, I can't believe I'm getting razzed by Rich Voss. This is awesome. And then a week later, or I'm sorry, three months ago, my girlfriend is, is friends with, k- kind of knows him. And usually he just makes fun of me. But since I, I came with her, he was like, hey, what's your name? And I And I started talking to him. And he was performing at a a drive-in show with cars. And then so he's like, oh, what do I say uh, to these cars? I never hosted in front of cars. And I say, well, ask him, where are you from, Detroit? And he said, that's a good one. Can I use that? And I said, sure, be my friend. Uh, (laughs) And then he said, oh, cool. I'm so glad he said yes, because I'm recording this TV special, and I'd love to use that. And I'm like, what? And then uh, I watched the special. It's on HBO Max. He's performing in front of cars. He does my joke. The first line is my joke. So I went from him not wanting to give me something for free to uh, him using something I wrote on TV. So it's uh, it's it's just an outrageous turn of events. How much do you think that joke would cost? Like if he bought that from you? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I Yeah, that's a good question. I would say like how much he gets paid per minute on that special. Give me the, the seconds that he said it for. <laughs> that's an expensive DVD then. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, like that's not probably not a fair trade. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, but so many people like that. So many comics that I've uh, followed on Instagram will I've, I'll eventually meet, and then they'll follow me back, or they'll follow me, and then it'll be a follow back. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like comics I adored and and would follow. That's when I'm like, oh, this is really cool. When um, I get them to respect me enough to follow me on social media after I've stalked them for years. <laughs> Does that get moment. old? Never, no. It's all. It's like collecting Pokemon, you know. Like, uh, oh my God, this guy followed me. Wow. Yeah, it I never get told no to. Yeah, I opened for uh, a super trooper, you know, Rabbit Eric Stolhansky. And oh, really? He just yeah. comment. I know the. I know the um, R- Rodshav does. Or, or uh, are you talking about the uh, the Indian guy? 
No, 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 no. Uh, Eric Stolhansky's Rabbit. Uh, they all do a little bit of stand-up. Uh, okay. Some of them do more often. Uh, Eric was doing more of like a question and answer thing too. It was okay. a few years ago. He was touring for Super Troopers 2. And that was like a moment where, like I've met, I've met Mario Lopez before and had like a, like a, an oh my God moment because I was 23, I think, interviewing him for a story uh, for a paper I didn't work for. And uh, I just kind of lied my way in there. And, <laughs> but like, yeah. but Stolhansky, I was booking a show and I booked him uh, through a friend of mine in Albany. And it was cool talking with him, but we didn't talk much. I mean, it was like, all right, well, I'm here to do my my job and you can do your job upstairs. So I'm like, ah, you know, kind of missed out on maybe a bonding moment with, you know, one of my favorite super troopers. Oh, man, that's uh, that's a tragic story. Yeah, it's way less depressing than Rich Voss. Yeah. Well, I got a su- similar story. Yeah. Uh, when I was a busboy, I would like go in the green room. I'd give them their the comics, the food that were in the green room. And I gave one to Charlie Murphy. He had like this woman and a big bong in there. And uh, some reason I was able to get a photo with him. I think it was at the end of his tour. And I'm like, man, this is cool. But so dumb. I, I you know, who ca- he, he was probably like, get away from me. Let me smoke my bong. <laughs> you, 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 <laughs> get away, freak. But. You know, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm sure it would have been a great time hanging out with Rabbit, but he probably just wanted to get back to whatever thing he was doing. Oh, I'm sure. And that's the thing. Like, I don't want to be in anybody's way. Uh, I was at the Syracuse Funny Bone to see Birbiglia, and he's my favorite guy. Like, my favorite comedian. Uh, Carlin's probably ahead of him all time, but I love Birbiglia's storytelling. You know, he's probably to blame for me getting into comedy in, in the first place. I and- love uh, Two Drink Mike. I feel like it's a perfect album. Some of the jokes are dated, but they're just, su- it's such a front to back solid album. It's so I funny. Think, I don't think anybody writes quite like he does. And I, I and I'm grows, so- it grows the, the level he does from two drink Mike to, Oh my God, or thank God for jokes. It's like, what? it's not, it's not even the same guy. He doesn't even sound the same. No. And I think like I tried to, it was so dumb, but I think everybody, when they start tries to model themselves after some comedian, but for Biglia, I, you know, you listen to him tell a story and he's got all these characters who are really well developed throughout the years. And I'm telling a story that has like maybe one punchline. So it's not working at all. But I, I spent more time making sure my buddy Jeff got mentioned in there. And it's like nobody gives a shit about Jeff. The only reason they care about Joe Bags is because Mike's been working on that for four or five albums. So like yeah, we're true. invested in these characters. The callback to Joe Bags, Joey Bag of Donuts. Yeah, like Chloe, his wife, Chloe, Jen, Chloe. Like he doesn't have to mention the fact that his wife is Jen, but he calls her Chloe. He can just call Chloe and people already laugh at that. Like yeah. that's, that's powerful. But he came out to Syracuse and one of the guys who works there was like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll let you, because uh, I've done a couple spots there. And he goes, yeah, I'll, I'll, meet, I'll introduce you to Berbiglia. And I'm like, oh, that'd be great. And then after the show, like, I'm so nervous because I'm not on the show. I don't want to just barge into the green room. And the guy came out and he goes, yeah, I, I wouldn't do it tonight. And I'm like, that's fine. I, I almost would prefer not to meet Mike Birbiglia tonight. I'm nervous and I want to, I don't want to find out that he's a dickhead. Oh, wow. Man, that was, uh, that story had so many t- twists and turns. I, that, that was the unexpected conclusion is you not even going in the room. Oh, it's, <laughs> even, it's even worse. I went down to see him. You remember, did you ever see Don't Think Twice? Yeah, of course. Okay. I, I, I lo- I'm i telling you, I'm obsessed with him. I, I, re- okay. I read his book uh, and my girlfriend's boyfriend or whatever it was. The first movie he made, I, I, I'm obsessed with. And Sleepwalk With Me. Sleepwalk With Me, yeah. Out of the book and the, and the movie. But I went down to see Don't Think Twice. He was doing a, a showing in Brooklyn. 
So I went down there with a friend of mine. Is that where he's ripping the tickets? I don't know. Uh, might have been. Or no, that that might have been the the sleepwalk or sleepwalk with me movie. But he dressed as a bell, like a ticket taker, and was taking tickets as a promotion. Oh no, that might have been. Don't think twice because they had the the character who's taking tickets. Oh, cool. King of Michael Key. But anyway, my friend and I were down there. We saw him and. We're walking out and there's kind of like a meet and greet, like an unofficial meet and greet, like right in front of the theater. And I'm like maybe 10 feet from him, like trying to get the nerve to walk over to him and shake his hand. And I think I'd been doing stand up for maybe three months at the time. And uh, my friend's like, you're going to say hi. I'm like, I don't know. As soon as I start to walk over to him, he walks away and I'm like, oh, like kind of deflated. And then I walk after him and we stalked him for about two blocks. And she's like, listen, I'm not following him to his house. Like, you either say hi to him now or we leave. I'm like, let's leave. Like, you I, didn't say I hi? Just, no, I just couldn't do it. I don't know why, but I couldn't do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's your hero. I get the yeah. feeling of of being too nervous to say hi. Uh, I mean, I, I've had that happen, too. But you got to keep in mind, this guy will never. Re- I have comics that are a little head, that are ahead of me in the game who I've met like 10 times. And I've talked with all night on the road. And then I'll see him again. They're like, do I know you? And I'm like. Yeah, man, we we hung out and talked for four hours and uh, in Rhode Island. And he's like, <laughs> nah, I don't know. So I'm just saying, like, comedians see so many people and, and meet so many people. Like, you you would just be a blip in the radar, but you would get so much out of it. It's worth. Oh, I know. Uh, I know. Say something. And like, like I was a sports reporter for a while, and I, you know, I'd been in major league baseball clubhouses and NFL locker rooms, and like, like you would think that at a certain point that's not going to affect me anymore. Like, uh, like I'm not going to be affected by any stardom, but no, when it comes to Birbiglia and like, if I saw Dave Chappelle, I'd be like, Hey, uh, I'm going to go talk to my buddy over there. Like you enjoy your night. I don't want to be part of your next joke. I don't want to, you know, make you not want to come back to this town anymore. Yeah. It's hard to, to just like, what do you talk about? Like, you know, yeah. so for example, Gaffigan, who I, I was one of my favorites when I was growing up, he came into New York. I was, I was on the show. I went up like first and he was just was dropping in to work on, the bit that or the the bit that was about his wife having cancer in the brain or whatever. Yeah. I can't I can't remember. I think that was the most recent one, but he came yeah. in to work on that and he comes in the green room and I'm like, oh my God. You know, like I can't believe it's him. And I don't know what to say. So I just go like, hey Jim, they're uh they're pretty good. And he goes, That's good to hear. And he just like just ignores <laughs> me. Like, uh, you know, because he's focused on his notes. He wants to go yeah. on I and talk about his wife having brain cancer. I wonder if at Gaffigan's level, like he gives a shit if, if the crowd is good or not. He's like, <laughs> yeah, that's he's true. like, listen, if they were okay for you, I'll be fine. You know, like he's like, I played worse. I, I've been around forever. I, I don't I even need it. to do comedy anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I wonder, cause I would always want to know, like if they're bad, I would want to know. Me too. Just to have, if the first joke doesn't do well, but maybe he appreciated it, but just didn't, just didn't want to talk to me. I, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> or maybe he doesn't care. I don't know. No, I'm sure you appreciate it. It's just like, like, I just wonder their mindset where it's like, you've been doing comedy for 30, 40. I mean, he's not that old, but you do comedy for 30, 40 years. It's like, we're used to this. It doesn't matter. I can kill anywhere. Uh, it, it's nice of you to to tell me that, but I'll show you that it doesn't matter. You know, if the room is cold or warm or whatever. Well, to that, I, I, I watch his set cause you know, I'm obsessed with him again, but and some of the jokes were bombing and he goes, eh, I guess that sucked. You know, like, oh, wow. so he, he was pretty self-aware of what was working. He had some joke about how, uh, oysters and shellfish are called the fruit of the sea in French. And he goes, yeah, that's what you see when you picture fruit or, uh, lobsters. And, 
and it really got nothing. Even though I was laugh, I was laughing, but and he goes, and I never heard him say that ever again. So oh, okay, and, and he acknowledged that it sucked on stage. <laughs> is that like that has to make you feel better about your process and everything too, right? Like, oh, like that guy can bomb a joke too. It's not just me. It's not just me tonight. It's Gaffigan too. So you know, maybe it is the audience. Oh yeah, and I see comics I respect and admire do that same thing. And it's all on different levels. Like to him, these people didn't even know he was on the show. Didn't pay to see him. Uh, he's not getting paid for the spot. He's just coming in. So he's like, I, this is my open mic is this. And then like a comedian, like if you know, Sam Murill, he will go to a bar show where he knows the audience isn't paying to go there and he's not being paid. And then that's his open mic and watching him actually work on joke. Cause I used to run a bar show that, I used to try to get him on as many, as much as possible just to see him work. But he would have this long legal pad of jokes and he would just do a bit, pick up the pad, look at it, put the pad down and then say the next joke. He doesn't even give a crap. You know, like the, the lack of uh, caring he had toward an audience really like endeared. I, I don't think he was killing with the jokes. He was getting an accurate gauge and that's how good of a writer he was. It's like there was no smoke and mirrors they knew he was just reading from a piece of paper but the jokes were so good that it was still working for him yeah like like he didn't care one bit about his stage presence no he didn't care yeah he didn't care that uh, anything he really the lack of caring it just exudes confidence to to an audience where they want to hear what you have to say next do you think you could ever get to that level i try i mean i i do that at open mics i thought that was like my big because I used to treat every open mic like a show, like trying to memorize my jokes, go over it in the shower. And now I just uh, read from the piece of paper or um, won't even know what I'm going to talk about sometimes until I get up there. But at a live show, same kind of rules apply. Like if people, if I'm at a club, like, so I, I do guest spots at clubs throughout the city and uh, those I will not mess around at all. Those are the ones I will say my set in the shower and, right. And make sure everything's all the T's are crossed because I want to get work there in the future. But people like, and then I feel like maybe that'll affect my set as being, that'll make me a little nervous too, but I'm working on it. Yeah. I, you know, I started doing storytelling and then I went to one-liners to, you know, like I said, my stories didn't always have a punchline. So I figured if I learn how to write one-liners, you need a punchline. So I would try to memorize all those one-liners and I ended up coming off robotic and I figured, okay, well the best way to do it is to have a memorized, but like, fake it it's like a like you know it's one of the only things right now you, you want to be louis uh ck like like every t- every time he came up with a joke you thought that was the first time it came out of his mouth right, and that's true once i got into that groove where i was comfortable with the jokes i was like oh now the audience actually likes the joke or me maybe 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 they're okay with the joke but they like me more so you know i just need to be more comfortable yeah it's the, the experience of that helps and i feel like every time you move up a notch in comedy you become more confident and uh and more loose too. Like Louis at the top was at the top of comedy. Right. He had so much. He's like, I can't do anything wrong. That's why everything sounded so fresh. Cause he didn't care. Like he talked it like it was said the first time. Cause he talked like he didn't care what the result was, you know, uh, even though he did care and he wrote it, but I, like, I'll see my friends move up in comedy and, and their stage presence gets so much better. Cause they have like the validation that they're doing things. Correct. Like my girlfriend well, and Steven, Steven, yeah. once he got on Colbert, I feel like his whole set, it was like a whole different world between pre Colbert and post Colbert, Stephen on stage. He's became super relaxed, confident, messed around, talk like he said the joke. And it was just from that validation of 
you know, I'm I'm now at this level instead of that level. Right. Your girlfriend, how long has she been doing comedy? She's she's from Rochester, so uh, she's from she Rochester, started yeah. it, right? She started down here. She just grew up okay. Similar yeah. story. I think she loved comedy but didn't know what to do. And then she moved here and I think did improv and said this is lame and then uh, <laughs> and then did stand up. But once she she got uh, an MTV show or she was a part of an MTV show. And once she was on TV, the same thing, the stage presence was, was night and day. Like it was super confident, super loud, super funny. And you know, like it, it was crazy. It was crazy to see the change. Right. Maddie Smith, right? Maddie Smith. Yeah. Sorry uh, if I didn't say her name. Yeah, that's it. Is that difficult for you? I mean, obviously it probably isn't, but like dating a comedian, are you competitive at all with her or does it help the writing process? Do you guys have to separate being a comedian from being in the house together? It's a it's an interesting relationship with where uh, we don't usually help each other do the bits because her style is different than mine. I, I don't even know what her style is. It's it's funny, <laughs> but I don't know what it is. But I'll give her some notes on stuff where I'm when she's working on a new bit. I'll like be like, hey, try it this way. And if I'm working on a new bit, she might get throw a, a tip or two. But very rare that it happens. Usually, me and her just write separately and. She she gave me she sometimes gives me a notes like hey you're talking with the mic too close to your face or something you know like general notes like that and I'll be like oh thanks uh, but yeah I don't know because uh, me and her both get up a lot and we both get up a lot different or before the pandemic in different rooms so we do we kind of do our own thing and we know enough that if an audience doesn't laugh that's a bad joke you know? <laughs> it's kind of a good sign yeah I don't know uh, but I'll help her with other things like when she got the wild and out show. I like help prep her for the audition. We we didn't even know if it was going to happen or not, but she was good at the roast battles here in New York. And I was like, just uh, I'm like, you know, going over the, the roast jokes for the audition. I'm like, you might see a guy who's fat. Let's have jokes for him. And right. you might see a guy who's short. So we kind of had a joke all set. And then when she went to the audition, there was a fat guy. There was a short guy. There was a guy who was feminine or whatever. So she knocked all she knocked the audition out of the park. And then she had the callback and we, we worked on the callback. I forgot what that was. So then when she got the television show, I felt like me and her like both went through this agonizing process together. So I was super, you know, I saw like the whole process unfold. It wasn't like she got plucked out of nowhere. She like worked really hard to get on the show. So I was like, um, I think like when comedian couples, like the next person moves up, the other person's jealous or something. But I was just super like, I felt like I got the the show too, you know, from right. the work I put into it to help her get ready. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think as long as she doesn't rub her success that you helped her get. I mean, not that you were like 100% or you might have been 5%. But like, as long as she doesn't rub that in your face, it's like, well, like I had a girlfriend. Uh, we were both in journalism. And I was working at a small newspaper in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, a really small town, just not a, not a lot of positives in it. I helped her get a job at the Baltimore Sun because I did her editing test for her. And anything that she could take home from there, I did it for her. And she got the job. And I could never get a job at the Baltimore Sun. Yeah, She, she was at least nice enough to never say, well, I'm working at the Sun and you're not. Because I'd be like, listen, I'm the reason. <laughs> like, like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a part like, in this. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the same thing. I could never be on that show. Like when she's on that show, I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. I could never be a cool uh, kid uh, saying jokes uh, in front of that because she, th- those jokes she says on the show, she doesn't really get to run on in front of an audience. It's all do or die on live TV. So I'm like, wow, you know, power to you. And I can't even dance, and a lot of that shows dancing. <laughs> how uh, <laughs> how have you adjusted during the pandemic? Like, uh, I mean, are you are you doing a lot of work? I mean. Obviously, I saw you last night in a show, 
and you're very funny. So you haven't lost that at least. Yeah. Thank you. The, um, so like the first two weeks I was like, you know, like everybody like, oh, this is, this is only going to last like a two weeks and then it's going to be back to normal. So I, I took the two weeks off and just played video games and didn't leave my bed, you know, cause I, I had that uh, leading up to the pandemic. I had been like the busiest I had in my life, like on the road doing like a ton of spots. So I was like, finally a break. Jesus Christ. Finally, <laughs> I get to like sleep and play a video game. And then after the two weeks, I'm like, well, this is weird. And I couldn't, that's I had trouble sleeping and I had trouble uh, doing anything like I, I, my brain couldn't adjust to not getting constantly rewarded with jokes, you know? Yeah. And I, I was seeing a therapist over Zoom or whatever. And she's like, you're not being stimulated anymore. And she's like, what, what's your day like? And I'm like, well, I wake up and I uh, I play video games and then I get out of bed and walk around. I like I get out of bed at like uh, eight to go to the bathroom. And she's like, what? you're in bed all day. I'm like, yeah, it's the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so once I started getting out of bed, I feel like I was starting to write again. And I had a couple of tweets go viral right at the beginning. And that kind of boosted me up where I'm like, Oh, cool. Uh, I can still write and stuff. And then, um, and then I started making a show with Maddie. We did, we did like a talk show and it's called late afternoon. And that was like a motivation to write monologue jokes and, and sketches and stuff. And then, but the stand up was still like nothing. Like it was it was maybe like a Zoom show a week. I did a college show that no one's mics are muted and it sucked and I was supposed to get paid and I never did and oh, uh, So I was like stand up is over. So I started doing other things and then things started opening up here in like the summer and I started doing outdoor shows and they sucked and I I was so rusty. But then I started getting used to it, writing new material and then those ended after like 2 weeks. The city said no more booked events. So it was, it was it's been horrible i, I don't know I, how to describe it but i've been trying to adjust every step of the way so once they turn off the they said live events are no more i started doing more zoom stuff and then once they said live events are back which they did i think at the end of the summer i was like i, I didn't want to get overreacted again so I, I did zoom and i did the whatever live show i could do and now it's completely zoom but I, i'm now used to it i'm now like quarantine man i'm i'm adjusted <laughs> I have uh, I have adjusted completely to this life. And Steven was on the road with Brian Regan and Brian Regan got COVID. And now he can't perform. He's freaking out. He's doing what I did like in, in the summer. And I'm like, what could, I, I was born in the darkness, man. Uh, you know, welcome <laughs> to my sad world of, of quarantine. So I don't know what to tell you, but yeah. So I, I still write I, and I still like try to do, get the viral tweets uh, and stuff, but as in regards to stand up, it, it's like a zoom show here or there. And, and, uh, and then working on new material, and stuff. But that podcast has been going every week. So, I mean, has that helped keep you sane? Yeah. Uh, so, like, Stephen and I, we do a bonus episode for Patreon. So, I talk to him at least twice a day. And the, the most sane thing about it is I have a reason to text him. You know, like, <laughs> I have a reason to text him twice a week to schedule recording the, the episode and the, and the uh, Patreon. So, at, without him, I, I've, I've lost touch with all the comedians. Like, we talk we talk on each other's birthdays at this point. Like, we're, we're old college buddies. <laughs> Yeah, I ran an outdoor mic for the summer, and oh, nice. I'm not sure how we're able to do it, but we're still doing. Uh, we moved the mic inside, and uh, you know our levels aren't really high. Maybe that's how they can get away with it, or the fact that only like ten people go every week. So we are very socially distanced. And I always think like a comedy open mic in upstate New York is the perfect socially distanced activity because you're going to get the comedians and maybe three or four audience members and nobody wants to sit next to each other anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a typical open mic. 
and and like in Binghamton, at least in when I was in Rochester a couple months ago, they they could eat with their mask off inside. Yep. So if yeah. they can do that and talk to their friends and family at a table without a mask, then you can perform in front yeah, of ten we, losers. <laughs> we we've been able to do that. We've been able to eat in restaurants pretty much the entire time. Like like people complain about things being locked down. It's like not in this county. Like we're not. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, the numbers have spiked every once in a while, but it's like like nobody's freedoms have really gone away like the only you know, i shouldn't say it this way but like i feel like comedians are some of the only people and musicians who have really been you know hampered by everything with covid related all the rules because i would run three shows a week and then now i'm doing a zoom show every other saturday so yeah. it's really hurt yeah man i feel that and that i i have to host uh trivia on zoom to compensate for the money i would get on the on the road and stuff and I, you have to adjust, yeah. And then just keep in mind that it's not forever, and people are going to be dying to go see live stand up when this is all over, and everyone gets two doses of whatever vaccine there is. Yeah, that's that's the hope, at least. Do you remember the worst set you've ever had? Oh yeah, it's, this one still haunts me to, to this day. Where uh, there's this comedy club in in Times Square called LOL. Yeah. Laugh out loud. I think I don't even think it's called laugh. I think it's just called LOL. And I just I was a year into comedy, and I had a friend who was a couple years older than me, who was like, hey, uh, I don't want to do these spots. They're so late. Would you want to come up and I'll get you in and you can do them? And I'm like, sure. Comedy club. I was just performing in bars and stuff and uh, restaurants are horrible places. So I went up with him <laughs> to Times Square. Mind blown. I'm like, I'm performing at Times Square. This is cool. And the club was like on the third floor of like a performance space. Uh, you had to take this shoddy elevator and the rooms look like classrooms. It was, it was just a bad place. And to get the people inside, they would have barkers with, um, and they got in trouble for this. And I think sued, but they would have barkers with, uh, pictures of Tina Fey and, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, Dave Chappelle and be like, these guys are performing tonight. Come, come see them. So these, these tourists in Times Square would, uh, buy these tickets for like a hundred dollars or whatever these barkers could get. Because the Barkers would get the tickets for, for... The deal was they buy the tickets from the club for $5 a piece and whatever more they could sell them, they keep it. So if they can sell it to a gullible tourist for 100 bucks, they get 95 bucks. That's amazing. It's crazy. So that's why they said Tina Fey's here and people don't even do stand-up. Whatever, so they would ask them what celebrity they like and be like, they're here. Come check them out. <laughs> so I didn't know any of this. I just knew it was a comedy club. In Times Square, and I thought that was cool. So I went up there with my friend, and they and they were like, "Okay, the Booker likes you. You're in. Your spot is at 1:45 a.m. and it's a check spot." And they asked, "Do I know what that is?" I'm like, "No." Perfect. They're like, "Okay, okay. So you're going to be performing when the checks are coming out. Just keep that in mind." And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, "So yeah, well, who cares? That's I don't care that checks are coming out. But if you don't know, that is the worst time to perform because no one's looking at you." They're all looking down. They're all talking amongst themselves. So it's all noisy. And in comedy, you kind of need like to build up tension between the setup and punchline to get a laugh. And if people are talking and not looking at you, you can't get any laughs because no one cares about you. You're just some freak who's in the way of them complaining about the margaritas are too expensive. <laughs> You're just some loser that's up there talking to a microphone. So I didn't know any of this. I was like, okay, great. It's a huge, humongous opportunity. I'm going to get in with the club. So I got going against me. It's 1.45. They're sleepy. I'm sleepy too. This is like the latest I've ever performed in my life. They thought they were going to see Tina Fey. They're pissed that the drinks are overpriced. And the overpriced receipt is in their face at that moment. So 
I'm the second to last comic to check spot. They bring me up. I'm thinking I'm going to kill, you know, no one, it's chaos. Everyone's talking and, and uh, no one's paying attention to me. First joke bombs. There's about 10 people in the room. Second joke bombs. Third joke bombs. So by now, they, they don't talk amongst the check anymore. It's complete silence. I'm bombing. So it has now been about 20 minutes. Oh my God. The headliner was running late. They left me up there. Didn't tell me. They just said, go until we give you the light. So I'm 20 minutes in to, to the worst set of my life. Finally, somebody gets up and says, boo, you stink. And they, <laughs> and they walk out. They, just, they leave. And then I say, oh, hey, at least you were listening. Because I didn't think anyone was listening to me. It was complete silence until this guy told me I stink. And then 10, minute, 10 more minutes go by. At this time, I had five minutes of material. I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just... I don't even know what the hell to this day. I don't know what I'm talking about. I probably like, so this is in the news, everybody. I, I, the, the most horrifying thing when you're a comedian is having, you're out of jokes. So, uh, more people start getting up and saying you stink. And then, uh, finally I get the light. I leave. It's been 20, it's been 30 minutes. And the guy's like, the host starts giving me notes. He's like, you know what? When you got up there, you should really ask for a round of applause. Cause that makes them look at you. And I'm like, I was out there for 30 minutes at two in the morning. And that's the note you give me. I had no way to winning. I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm, I'm a year into comedy. I have no jokes. And uh, never worked there uh, again for three more years. And then they asked me if I wanted to do a check spot the third, third year. I think I auditioned there and I said, no way. And then whatever. That that's it. a long story. But that was the worst experience of my whole life. And I, I think I couldn't do stand up for like three more days after that. Cause I, I was, I felt like I just fought in Vietnam. Yeah. At any point, were you like, well, this isn't for me. I'm done. Uh, this is a dumb move. Forget grad school, too. Like, I've, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, get rid of all of it. Uh, I think there was one time. Luckily, every time I, I, something bad happened, something good happened. So I think, like, I did a showcase in Philadelphia where uh, I bombed and all the comedians made fun of me for bombing. And I was like, I suck. And I, and I kind of had a thought, like, maybe this isn't for me, even though I've been doing comedy every day for four years. But then when I got back to New York, I, I had an audition and I passed. And then the club, it, it was like this kind of fancier or not, fan, but more prestigious club was like, all right, we're going to start working you in our rotation. I was like, me? Oh, my God. I just bombed in Philly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, so it, uh, I, I lucked out where every bad thing kind of came. Something good happened later. But it's I don't a, know if what I would do. I'm already in too deep, so I, I don't know what I, what I'm gonna do without comedy. But yeah, it's like you're it's like you're pot committed. Like you know, financially, it probably isn't the best choice. Like like, but like you love it so much, and you're obviously a comedy nerd. Like you're gonna go back now. Like who wants to go back to Richmond? Yeah, nobody. Yeah, not even people who live there want to go back there. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's already like a like you know, all my friends are back home. No, I do it. But, you know, the pandemic's a great reason to quit. Like, if I came back home, I'm like, hey, you know, comedy doesn't exist because of the pandemic. And I think everyone would be like, yeah, we get it. Yeah, and then, but, like, it opens up again, and you're like, shit. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> oh, God, I got to move back. <laughs> I just made Yeah, like, I had an apartment up there. Ah, everything's <laughs> gone. Yeah, I, I don't really grapple. Every bomb, of course, you're like, what am I doing? But, you know, usually it's something else went wrong that you don't really realize. Like at that show we did, a toddler walked in and completely, right. I'm not used to that. 
I, like, you know, if that happened a year ago, I'd be like, hey, screw you, you're a baby. But now I'm like, I don't, I, it threw me off completely because I wasn't used to being bombed like that or whatever, whatever it's called. So well, that's the thing. Like all these Zoom shows are, you never know, like, because you you want everybody's mics to be open so you can hear laughter. You right. want, you want the videos to be on so you can see their faces. So you know that you're not talking to into voids. But every once in a while, like, you know, you were maybe what, two minutes into the set, there was a baby who just yelled something. And like, I thought you handled it well, but it's like, how do you handle that at all? Like you're not used to a toddler running around a comedy club. And I'm used to New York City where it's like you fight. It's it's you against the audience at some of these shows. If they're drunk and, and it's late, like it's uh, if you lose the control over them, it's it's an avalanche of. So I, I have that like instinct of oh, I got to fight this person. Everyone knows that they uh, are trying to fight me for the attention. So I got to clobber them vocally or whatever. So I, that kind of kicked in with that toddler. I'm like. Excuse me, what did you say? But it's just a kid. They're good. <laughs> do you think uh, coming up in New York City, especially since you came up through New York City, do you have to be good at crowd work? Like dealing with hecklers? Is that a requisite for what you have to do there? Yeah, it helps a lot for sure. Like the first and your skill develops with that uh, as you do it. Because the first time I, I got a heckler, I, I was at a bar show and I thought I was like the hottest thing on earth. I've been doing comedy three months. And then this guy said, you stink. I mean, that's my that's the favorite heckle for me. It's <laughs> people say I stink, and I had nothing. I the guy was fat, and then I I had no comeback at all, and I just said, "Hey, well, your shirt sucks." And he goes, <laughs> "That sucked." And then uh, I'm just like, "Oh God," and I bombed. But then after that, I went home and I wrote all these roast jokes against that guy. I'm like, "All right, you work. You look like you are a janitor at the mall. You look like you're this." And then I kind of like honed that mean comeback uh, from trial and error. It was survival mechanism. I had to do it to survive. So so to answer your question, I don't know how you would be able to succeed in New York without that skill because it is so intimate. People are drunk right in your face and the rooms are so small that if, if people yell out, everyone looks at them. So I had to develop that skill. To me, that's a skill you need to have. But if you're in a perfect condition and you're a one-liner guy and people heckle you, I, I, I don't. what would you do if you're due to do one-liners? Then you have to break character and attack these people. Yeah, like a guy like Stephen Wright or Demetri Martin, like or Hedberg, you know, like how would they do that? Like Mitch Hedberg. And they came up in Boston. Stephen Wright came up in Boston where I yeah. assume they're all rowdy. Oh, I know. And like, but Hedberg, you know, he's from Minnesota. He's like that nice guy anyway, but he's this, this stoner character. And, you know, probably, you know, obviously a, a lot of his life was, was true, but like he can't get out of that character and like, Hey asshole, sit down. And I was like, like, no, that's not him. Like, yeah. And then get back into that character. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, impo- that's, probably, that's, that's probably the impossible part. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could break character and yell at the guy, but then the show would be over. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, I, I wonder, like, like you don't strike me as like a, a nasty comedian on stage. You seem like a nice guy. You're, you're very self-deprecating. So like if you go out and, and just, you know, retort to a heckler and and like just castigate him, is that completely out of character for you? Well, it's trial and error, too, because I used to have all wholesome jokes and then I would yell at somebody and tear them apart. And then I would get back in the wholesome jokes and they weren't working. So then I had to write mean jokes that now I have in my pocket. If I ever attack somebody in the audience, I go in the in the jokes where I attack people in my joke. And then that's a smoother transition. And then I can wean off of the mean jokes back into the wholesome stuff or whatever, so you, though. So you you basically got like a, a stack of oh shit, just in case jokes. Like, OK, I have, an, I have another set. Like I've got I've got the set I want to do and the set I might have to do. 
well, I just have topics. Uh, and then different audiences too. Like if an audience is a tough bunch of people and I can tell, like I did a show in front of cops and uh, I did self-deprecating stuff and I just bombed. That was probably one of the, the second worst that I ever did. Uh, and uh, and uh, I learned from that. So I'm like, okay, next time they're all tough and uh, rowdy, no self-deprecating openers. Just open right. with something, making fun of my girlfriend, making fun of where I live, making fun of my fa- you know the financial world or whatever, you know, something where I'm not the target of the joke. And then that kind of wins them over. And then I can make fun of myself. Yeah. One thing I hate is, you know, if you have to do a clean show, that's fine. And I don't mind doing clean. I can work clean, but inevitably when I get off stage and talk to somebody, uh, they're like, Oh man, I wish you could be dirtier. I'm like, yeah, me too. But, uh, couldn't do it. I mean, it's so much easier to get a laugh that way, but I couldn't do it. So no, no, no poopy, no poopy. I could, but I can't, I can't use the word shit. I did a clean show and this guy's like, yeah, no, oh, what did he say? Is it no sexual innuendo or no, I don't know. I forget exactly how I said it, but he told me it's got to be clean. And then he goes up on stage and is so much dirtier than we thought we were all allowed. Oh yeah. So like, so like he's singing a song about shitting his pants and I don't think he said shit, but like he's talking about, you know, crap in his pants and then having it leak all over everything. And it's like, okay, I understand the language is on your side but what about everything else yeah it's all it's all subjective clean is subjective so that guy was like i was clean because i didn't talk about sex and didn't use a curse word even though what i said is technically extremely dirty because i pooped my pants but it's it's all it's all subject yeah i would never say that at a church show or something you know (laughs) like kids might love it because they all poop their pants but (laughs) hey is there any topic more relatable yeah yeah i guess not yeah it's universal poop and pee (laughs) <laughs> some of us never grow out of it so you know I, true uh, if you hear a fart sound i'm laughing i mean you know if farts if somebody on a on a zoom conference call farts that is to me one of the funniest things i couldn't imagine following somebody who farted like obviously there are, there are reasons you wouldn't want to do that anyway uh but like if somebody just farts on the mic how do you come up after that you can't really especially because the mic smells now <laughs> <laughs> you gotta wipe that off I'd be so, like, I mean, what the hell? <laughs> obviously, it's it's tough for the pandemic, but like, uh, where do you see yourself? I mean, are you just just a comedian? Or do you want to write? Are you happy just being on stage? I want to do it all. I, I love writing. I, I just love to make jokes and, and make funny things. So if there is a job out there for me with that, that's great. If I can tour as a stand-up again, that would be awesome. But whatever kind of creative thing I can do, I, I'm into it. You know, I have like pilots I've written that, you know, I stink, but just to do it, I, I just love writing. So, and I've had a couple jobs where people pay me to write and pay me to do this and, and do that. And, it, and it's really rewarding, even though they don't really pay a lot and you can never, I could never support myself with what they pay me, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I'm working toward that goal of getting paid to be funny in some aspect, but I would still, I would still do stand up no matter what, because that is the pinnacle of, of uh, comedy to me. Yeah. Somebody asked me a long time ago if I would rather do the podcast or stand up. And I would definitely rather do stand up, but like I think it would depend on how much I was being paid. Like if I were Rogan, I'd be like, you know what, I can I can not do stand up for a hundred million dollars, but it would have to be a pretty big offer. Well, one is always they're always hand in hand. Like the podcast gives you an audience to perform in front of, and the stand up makes you funny for your podcast and gives you something to talk about. So I don't I don't I can't see a situation where, where it would have to be one or another. You know, even Rogan does stand up. Yeah. Plus, you know, you get you get a chance to talk to Steven Rogers for, you know, twice, twice a week, at least. That's so how, how are you going to get that up? 
You can't really. And that's what we said. We like, even if no one listens, at least we're having fun. Well, I think it's a great podcast and uh, I appreciate being on here. I'm going to let you go. But uh, thank you so much. Do you, do you have anything to plug aside from panic attacking? So panic attacking live. Uh, we actually, we do a live zoom show too, every two weeks. That next one is um, January 2nd. It's a Saturday. And let me see. Uh, I guess follow me on Twitter, a Chavone, S-C-H-I-A-V-O-N-E and Instagram, Andrew Chavone. And I, I'll plug dates on there when they come and, I'm trying to get into TikTok too. So good luck, man. I don't know. <laughs> I, I tried to write a sketch today and I was, I was, I, I spent like six hours on it between filming it and, and it's, it's 15 seconds long. And I posted on Instagram and no one liked it. So oh God, <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show you it's tough out there, everybody. And you're not 19. Like that, that's the problem. Like, like so many of these TikTok stars were like my friend Danielle, she got me into TikTok and it just cat videos. And I'm like, I have three cats. Like, that's how I can do it. But I forgot I'm not attractive and I'm not creative enough. But like, I don't want to be the 37 year old who bombs on TikTok. Well, that's me. Yeah, that's uh, I'm bombing. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> and then now I'm just I'm just like, screw it. I'm just doing a filter that turns me into a unicorn and I'm making sounds and that gets more views than uh, the ones I plan and write. And uh, so what I'm trying to say is follow me on Instagram because I post my TikToks on there and no one likes them. And follow me on TikTok, Andrew Chavon. <laughs> I, <laughs> I need it. <laughs> Just a little validation. It'll be, he'll be fine. Yeah. To be, give me something, people. <laughs> well, dude, I appreciate being here. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you in a bit. Peeling back my sunburnt skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I, I hope they let me in